0: Will you please make your way with me once again to the third chapter of the Apostle Paul's epistle written to the Galatians? Where this morning we are going to be considering the rest of chapter 3, considering verses 15 through 29. Galatians 3, 15 through 29, and you can find that passage on page 1143 in your pew Bibles. And last week we left off in what really was the middle of the third part of Paul's argument for the, justi- the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I really don't want to rehash those arguments again this morning. Just quickly, I'll summarize what we've looked at. He had clearly already called upon the Galatians to remember both his own as well as their own experiences and how they had received the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He stirred up their memories, you will remember, through a question. He asked them, was it by the works of the law, or was it by faith that you saw the hand of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives? He had asked them to dig down deep into their members and into their memories and remember something about God himself. He who supplies you with the spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul has stirred their memories and called upon them to think back to that time when he came to them. And he delivered to them the pure message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he told them that man, that is sinful man, is only reconciled to Almighty God by grace alone, through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And consequently, Paul had called upon them to cease from their striving. And to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and put on flesh, who took their sins with him to the cross, who died in their place, who was their substitute. Though they deserved the wrath of God and only the wrath of God to be poured out upon them for each and every one of their transgressions, transgressions that went directly against the Most High Majesty of Almighty God, Jesus Christ came and he fully satisfied the justice of Almighty God, taking that wrath upon himself in our stead. And So as Paul is sort of jarring the memories of these Galatians about how things had happened when he originally came with that very message, He then turns their eyes to the very Word of God itself. And he begins to point to the Scriptures as completely, totally validating everything he had taught them about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls upon them to remember the patriarch Abraham and the promise that was made to him. And he tells them that Abraham himself Believed God, that is, he trusted God, he took God at his word. And that belief, that supernatural trust, was then counted to him as righteousness. That all of those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham, and therefore the blessed recipients of all of the blessings of the promise made to Abraham and to his seed. Paul points to the glorious grace of the promise itself. And he again stirs up their memories about the way in which their gracious God operates in the lives of his people and how he has operated even in the past. Paul then makes that comparison between the promise and the resulting blessing of it with the law and the curse that exists because of the law. And he pushes the Galatians to see both the benefit of the promise as well as the purpose of the law so that they will wholeheartedly embrace the grace of God and never, ever again turn their backs upon the truth. Jesus Christ has redeemed us From the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us. Paul says. For it is written. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham. Might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the spirit. Through faith. Continually throughout this letter. We see the apostle Paul here. Gently calling his beloved flock. Back. From the brink, from the razor's edge of disastrous air, back from the bondage of living, or at least attempting, rather vainly, to live, according to the law as a means, of satisfying Almighty God. back from that cliff's edge of self-righteousness into the unspeakable joy of embracing the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone and his grace through faith. Paul is continually pushing them towards a deeper understanding of the gospel and giving them reason to realize what they have been given and why their possession of that gift and their subsequent knowledge of that gift should in fact change their lives for the glory of God. Not just intellectually, Not simply change just the way they think about God, but to change the way in which they live out their existences on this side of glory. Because they have been so transformed by this unbelievable message of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This morning, beloved, we are going to be looking at what is really the latter half then of this argument. As Paul brings, together things, brings things together here by once again comparing and contrasting the glorious promise of God with the wonderful purpose of the law of God. And once again, I hope that we'll be challenged to think about our own lives and the self-righteous behavior that all of us undoubtedly fall into time and time again as we watch the Apostle Paul, this great shepherd of the flock, obliterate the idea of our ever being found righteous, our ever being justified by the law. So it's with all that being said, I ask it that you follow along with me now as I read from the holy, and errant, and infallible Word of God. Galatians chapter 3, again, I'll pick up with verses 15 and read through the end of the chapter, ending with verse 29. Hear now the Word of our Lord. This is Paul speaking. He says... Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ And this I say that the law, which was four hundred and thirty years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should be that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Truly, righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. This is the word of our Lord. I'm sorry, I'm going to continue to read. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of our Lord. And may he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have every Lord's Day uh, to come before your word. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many, many things in this life that distract us. We pray that we would give our attention to the wonderful truth of your word so that hearing it through the power of your Holy Spirit, we might be transformed by it for your glory. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul continues to argue here upon the basis of the covenant made by God with Abraham and his seed. And he points out to the Galatians, I think at least somewhat to shame them here, that they certainly, of all people, they most certainly understand the way in which covenants work. In other words, what I'm saying is the idea of covenant is not at all lost on these folks. They know covenantal language, and they are very familiar with the way in which covenants are both enacted as well as ratified. This is not new material for the Galatians. And Paul is pointing out to them here that even if they were speaking of just some random covenant between two ordinary men here that they would all have to agree that a covenant made between two parties is not annulled and is not added to. Again, they understand these things. There is an agreement made and then that agreement is sealed and it is binding. There are promises made, there are stipulations, and there are expectations. And Paul says that even with men, when these covenants are made, we all understand, they all understand they are not annulled and they are not added to. I say this was at least somewhat to their shame because though Paul is speaking with them here in terms of men, they are certainly not just talking about some random covenant made between two ordinary men here, are they? They are, in fact, speaking about the covenant of all covenants, the most important covenant ever made. They are talking about the promise, the covenant made between Almighty God creator, sustainer, Lord, sovereign Lord of the universe and all that's contained within it, and Abraham, the patriarch, and his seed. So this is far more than just some covenant. And yet Paul makes it clear to the Galatians that even if they were just talking about any random covenant, there are expectations that they would all have regarding covenant they would all readily agree it could not be annulled it could not be added to it's absolutely binding and so saying this he again points them back to the context of that covenant he says now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made Paul again reminding the Galatians that the covenant did not just die off with Abraham It went beyond Abraham. That is, it was not only with Abraham, it continued with his seed. It was a covenant that went far beyond Abraham and continued to the promised seed. And who is that seed, we have to ask? Well, there's really no reason for us to have any confusion on that point. Because Paul ends all speculation, he ends all doubt, He even ends any conversation on the matter as he declares definitively, he does does not say, and to seeds as of many, but to your seed, who is Christ. The promise was, of course, not just to Abraham, but much to the chagrin of some of these Judaizers, these false teachers in the congregation of the Galatian church. Ultimately, it was also not simply for those who were physically descended from Abraham either. It was not enough to be a Jew nationally. It was not enough to be able to trace your lineage back to Father Abraham and to claim that you are an heir with him in the promise. Because as Paul points out, the promise was not to seeds. It was not to just physical offspring, but to a seed. Singular, not plural. And that seed was none other than Jesus Christ, the righteous. And only those who are united with Jesus Christ by faith have any real claim at all to being an actual heir of this promise with their father, Abraham. That's what Paul is saying. Just as Abraham had faith, and by that faith he was found to be righteous, so we, by faith, lay claim to Abraham as our father and to the Lord Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. But it's not enough for the Galatians to just hear that. This is, once again, the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but The Galatians had done far more than simply lost their joy and their realization of the promise of God through Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, but they had been now turning towards the law of God as a means of satisfying for what Jesus Christ himself, the seed, had already fully and completely satisfied for. Paul points out the folly of this as a means of being justified before God. Beloved, we must see this. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. Look what he says. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant, that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So now the Apostle Paul is really getting to the heart of the matter. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must get this. If we indeed are to be people who care enough to get the gospel right. If we miss this, then the next question is really of no use to us. Paul says, look, all of you who are now running to the law for your justification, I want you to look and I want you to consider the promise. We all agree that you cannot annul, you cannot add to a covenant. You see, this promise was made 430 years before the giving of the law. And the law itself cannot and it does not annul it. The law does not replace this covenant. Beloved, do you hear the word of God? Because we must hear this. We need to hear this. And I trust that if you are someone who struggles with self-righteousness this morning, that you are either ignoring the clear teaching of the Holy Scripture or you find in the Word of God this morning tremendous, glorious, precious relief. Relief. You who live by the law, you are not making yourself an heir to the promise through your work. You are an heir when you, like Abraham, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone through faith. When you embrace the substance of the promise. Paul says this covenant was confirmed by God in Christ. And that which comes 430 years later in no way, shape or form annuls the promise. Our hope is in the promise made to Abraham and to his seed, who is Christ. Beloved, I want to ask you, does that, does that bring you relief this morning? You see, if you are trying to satisfy for your sin by what you do, then I know with absolute certainty that if you are hearing it with Holy Spirit empowered ears this morning, that it has to satisfy. It has to relieve you. It has to bring you comfort. Because this is precisely why the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. We cannot do it. We can't do the work. We can't do enough. We can't change what we are in Adam. But Jesus came. And he did the work. And what we desperately need is faith. Faith that God graciously gives through his grace as a gift. When we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, we know that he has undoubtedly fully completely satisfied for all of our sin. And we look to him and him alone as satisfying the justice of God through his own perfect obedience to the law. And our striving should end when we come to grips with that. And I can imagine what a weight was lifted from these Galatians as they had struggled in vain to try to become more justified. To become heirs of the promise by their own supposed adherence to the holy law of God. So I said that we must first get this so that we can even begin to answer the next question. That so naturally arises in the heart of man. And it's, an, it's a question that the Apostle Paul anticipated himself. Look at what he asks. What purpose then does the law of God serve? It is a great question, isn't it? If we are indeed made righteous through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Solely because of the grace of Almighty God alone. Then why? Why did he have to give the law? Why did we have to receive the law? Why the law? Why Sinai with all of its terrifying fire and smoke and thunder and weak, trembling knees and fear? What good could it do? Do we even need it? Should we entirely disregard it now that we now know fully that we are given grace through faith because of the covenant made with Abraham and with Jesus Christ, his seed? Well, Paul knows enough not to leave this one to men's fancies. He answers that very question and he does it with clarity. Look with me at verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added... 430 years later because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. What is the purpose of the law? To show us our sin And our need for salvation, our need for a redeemer, our need for the fulfillment of the promise and to keep us until that promise comes in fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see, beloved, the purpose of the law is to illuminate for us the horrific sin that plagues even believers lives while they wait for the seed. The law prepared the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think of Israel, they were God's chosen people and yet sin abounded in their ranks and the law showed to them the heinousness, the obnoxiousness, the wickedness of their sin before the face of a holy and perfect God. So God gave the law to illuminate the sin of his people and to show them their dire and desperate need of a perfect redeemer and a perfect redemption. And he gives them the law through his angels by the hand of a mediator between God and the people. We know, of course, that that mediator was Moses. Paul points out the relationship of both himself and the people with regards to a mediator. In verse 20, he says, Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. I want you to understand, we are the offenders in this relationship. We have, through our sin, offended God. He himself is absolutely without offense. He has therefore offended no one. He has offended in nothing, but indeed we have offended. And our offense is such that God cannot and will not overlook it. And we can do nothing to atone for it. We cannot ever make it right in and of ourselves. The breach that has been caused by our offense is far too great to get across. So we are at discord with God from the moment we come into being. Beloved, you can see the dilemma, right? God cannot overlook our trampling of his law. We can do nothing on our own to ever make it right again. We cannot close that breach. We cannot bridge that gap. But Jesus Christ has set himself as a mediator between two parties that are infinitely separated. By the grace of God, he has brought them together again. He has reconciled them. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This verse really should end any question? of our ever becoming righteous through the law. It is crystal clear. It means exactly what it says. Jesus Christ himself has reconciled us to Almighty God. He has acted as our mediator. He has wiped out the, the curse, the requirements. He has forgiven our sins. He has taken it out of the way, and he's nailed it to the cross. Beloved, what room do we have for self-righteousness in our lives? Self-righteous, self-sufficient Christians are walking, talking contradictions. They're the very picture of hypocrisy. And sadly, all too often, they are far more in abundance than we are ever wanting to admit. I hope that if nothing else is clear, as we've spent week after week in this letter that you at least take away the idea that self-righteousness really is death to the Christian. You're playing with fire. It is 100% opposed to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and to the wonderful biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. It simply does not allow for any wavering on that here. Paul is teaching his beloved church that the law of God is the hammer that smashes into bits our self-righteousness and our foolish notions of self-sufficiency. We need to rail against it when we see it, beloved, in, in ourselves and when we see it in others. We must never allow ourselves to begin down that slippery slope where we start to think that we are anything other than desperately wicked apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. When we are using the law as we should use it, it becomes absolutely clear that that is exactly what we are. Look at verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? It's that emphatic negative that we find in so many of Paul's letters. Certainly not. May it never be. Do not even suggest such a thing. For if there had been a law given which could give life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. The law is not against the promise of God. On the contrary, it has allowed us to see that we are all condemned under sin. By the grace of God, we see it. The law keeps driving us away from self towards the fruition of the promise. and We need to see it. There is not one righteous, no, not one. That is the clear teaching of scripture and the law acts as a mirror reflecting before our faces our unrighteousness when we peer into it. And we are undone with what we see. We are terrified when we see the holy, righteous commands of Almighty God and how far even the best of us truly is from them. We should be undone. There's nothing left for us to do but tremble when we see how we have offended a perfectly holy God. We wait for the wrath of God to come. That's what we get from the law. It's the lie of the devil himself to think that we ever go to the law and see how well we measure up. We go to it and, beloved, if we see things as they truly are, we are wrecked by what we find there. Destroyed. and God in his infinite grace and mercy then turns our weary, terrified heads towards the cross of Jesus Christ and we find a reason to hope. That is the only way we ever walk away from the law feeling better about ourselves. This has always been the way with the law. You remember that scene from Exodus. Exodus. When the Israelites think that they are prepared to receive the law of God. They've cleaned themselves up. They've washed themselves. They've made themselves pretty. They're wearing clean garments. They've abstained from sexual relationships. They're all feeling much, much more pure than they had been feeling. And they're feeling pretty positive now about going to the mountain and having an encounter with God as they approach that mountain and they begin to feel the earth vibrating, trembling under their feet and the mountain is smoking and burning and the thick black ominous clouds are present and they see the lightning and they hear the the terrible crashing thunder and they instantly forget all about their newfound purity. And they look at Moses, who himself is trembling, and they say to him in terror, we'll do everything God asks, but don't let him talk to us, lest we die. That's the law. That's what our experience with the law should be like. And obviously, beloved, after we're believers, our position, our our outlook on the law certainly changes, and we'll get to that this is where the law brings us. We should instantly forget about having anything in us that resembles purity. And we should embrace our mediator in faith. Knowing if not for him, we would have no hope at all. We would be left to waste away in our terror. Paul does such a masterful job here. Of showing the Galatians the folly of ever thinking that we could be justified by the law. For the faith, he continues on, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. The law was to bring us to the terrifying realization of our sin, and the offense that it truly is before a perfect and holy God. And having realized our condition and the hopelessness of our situation, God graciously, mercifully turns our eyes to Jesus Christ in faith. We're no longer in need of a tutor or a guardian because we have become the sons and the daughters of the Most High God in Jesus Christ. Paul could not be any clearer What absolute nonsense it would be to know the promise, to embrace the promise, then turn to the law in its terror and seek to be justified by what we find there. The only thing we can do, the only thing we can hope to find is the end of our striving. The end of our arrogance and ever believing that we could somehow measure up to God's standards. There we find the death blow dealt to our tiny, pathetic little kingdoms of one, kingdoms of self. In order that we might live in the majestic beauty of the kingdom of God. Paul points out again that we are not recognized by God because of our tie to Abraham as our physical father, but because of faith in Jesus Christ, the seed to whom the promise was made. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. United to him by faith, you're wearing his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Then you are Abraham's seed. And you are heirs according to the promise. The definition of who we are should absolutely flow out of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in him and in him alone and from nothing else. If you are someone searching the world over for your identity this morning, your search most certainly can and indeed should end here. Our identities are rooted in Jesus Christ. We are sons because of him. We are righteous because of him. We are heirs of the promise because of him. Abraham is our father. We are heirs together with Jesus Christ and all the blessings of the covenant because of him. We are here this morning to worship because of him, because of his deep love for us. Beloved, we must understand it. As we continue to work through this amazing explanation of what it is that justifies us before God, written here by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I pray that our hearts will be filled with purpose that directs us as we worship. I pray that you too will see the grace of God in our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone as truly completely amazing. And I pray that the lives of our congregation will be affected by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will never be content to let this faith just be another thing that we do in our pursuit of the so-called good life. I pray, beloved, that we would see it as the apostle Paul did. Never being able to remain silent when this message would dare to be compromised. Never being able to stop the tears of joy that well up in our own eyes when we begin to see the way and the full extent to which Almighty God loves his church in Jesus Christ. Amen.